The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, hey guys, uh, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, and um, I really apologize for how cold it is. I don't know what's uh, I don't know what's up with that. It's actually my fault. I think I've been saying for like three months now that I'm going to figure that out, and I haven't. But at least you guys will be awake. You know, if it gets too warm, you're sleeping, you're snoring, that's embarrassing, you know, all that good stuff. Hey, real quick, before we get started, so if you guys have been watching the news at all, you guys kind of know what's going on down in Weed, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, down in Weed, the bull's fire down there, okay? Uh, If you don't know, there was a pretty gnarly fire down in Weed, California, just a few hours, basically our neighbors down there. Um, destroyed upwards of 150 structures, apparently. And so that's left a lot of, like, homeless people, a lot of people that don't have anywhere to go. Uh, Wairika High School's opened up their their, uh, facility for people to stay there. Some motels have opened up their doors and things like that. But this happened just, like, literally, like, two nights ago. So this is pretty fresh. Um, And uh, we've already done a little bit to jump in there. Um, We drove uh, a truckload of stuff down yesterday, diapers and some new clothes and some some toiletries and stuff like that for these guys. Um, But we're going to be trying to get together some donations specifically for them. So I just wanted to open that up to you guys. Now, here's what they need, okay? They don't need uh, necessarily stuff right this second. They don't need, um, per se, uh, they don't need furniture at this moment or anything like that. What they do need is, excuse me while I do two jobs at the same time. Um, what they do need is they need uh, toiletry stuff. They need clean, brand new underwear and socks. <laughs> uh, they need, um, what was those, like diapers. They need um, foods that can't go bad. So canned foods, box foods, things that they can basically, um, you know, can eat but don't have to be refrigerated, things like that. So if you guys would be willing and, and would be, you know, able to get some of that stuff together, you can drop it off over at the Heritage Hub during our office hours. Um, if we're not open or you, you can't get to us, Casc- or not Cascade, uh, Crater High is also taking donations, um, but we really wanted to get together as a church and just continue to do more uh, to support them. So, um, and then I just want to pray for them really quick too as well, because there's some, some that I can't imagine losing everything just in a blink of an eye, your house, maybe your business. Weed's a really poor community. Uh, I grew up down in that area, and so um, let's pray for them really quick. Father, uh, Lord, it's just, it's just really hard when these things happen, God. Um, but Lord, we, we know, uh, we understand your sovereignty, God. We understand that you work through all things, that Father, you are greater than uh, the consequences of the fall, Lord, that you're greater than uh, fires, that you're greater than people losing their homes. Uh, Father, we know that you can work through this, Lord, and we ask that you would work through this. God, we know that the greatest need of those people at this moment is not necessarily a new home. It's the gospel, Lord. Uh, they need the truth of you, Jesus. And, 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 and as their treasure has been robbed, Jesus, I pray you would replace that treasure, <laughs> that you would become that treasure, that you would become uh, the world that they had built for themselves, Lord, and that you would be greater. Uh, I know you would be greater than the house that they've lost, the life that they've lost. God, we praise you that no one was hurt there, and we pray that we would be able to come together as a church and to serve them, uh, Lord, and in hopes, Lord, even that we could meet some of those people and, and, and minister the gospel to them, Jesus. Pray that in your name. Amen. All right, Bibles, Mark chapter 11. If you got them, book of Mark, second gospel in the New Testament, find Matthew, take a right, Um, and that's where we will be. We're going to be starting in verse 12.
So in my brief observations of the world, I'm only 25 years old, so I haven't really been around that long, and some of you guys have probably been around three or four times as long as I have. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe not four times. Why are you looking at me like that? I wasn't talking about you, Julie, come on. <laughs> that was not a jab in anyone. <laughs> Someone's 100, they could be four times, you know. Anyways, again, bad start. Good grief. Cut all this out. Um, in, in, my, in my brief observation of life in my 25 years, uh, there's one thing that I know, okay? Um, I've said this before. Uh, but the one thing that I do know is that everyone in this world, all six billion plus people in this world, are looking for one single, one single thing. They're looking for peace. They're looking for that, that place in their life, that moment in their life, where they can finally take a deep breath and say, I made it. I'm here. I can be done stressing. I can be done um, with anxiety. I can be done with anger. I can be done with lust. I can be done with wanting more and more and more. Everybody, Christian, non-Christian, everybody wants that. Right? Everybody wants that. The Hebrews have a word for that. In ancient Hebrew, it's called shalom, okay? It's peace. We all want shalom. We all want peace. And not just peace like, yeah, I feel pretty good right now, but like like real inner peace, right? This is something that we're all looking for. You got monks living in, 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 in Rome on this coastal area. I watched this documentary about it, fascinating, that have literally completely cut themselves off from the world. Their full desire, their full focus is to try to find this sanctuary, to try to find this peace, to try to find this shalom that everyone wants. And they've done it by cutting themselves off from the world. Maybe if we, if we get away from everything that's evil in the world, then we'll find the shalom. Um, you got people that are businessmen, businesswomen, successful people that are storing up money and storing up, getting their RV together and getting their bank account nice and fat in their 401k so that they can hopefully get the shalom when they retire, jump in their RV and go across the country, right? I mean, they're looking for that too. You got people that are drug addicts that are pursuing shalom, pursuing peace. Maybe this next hit, maybe that next drink will at least make me feel peace for a second, at least for a moment, Right? Even if it's not forever, at least I can have peace. I can, I can feel happy. I can feel joy. I can feel good for a moment. We have certain Muslims in this world right now that will literally destroy Americans at any cost because someone has lied to them and told them that they'll find that peace if they do that. If you fly a building into that and destroy as many Americans as you possibly can, you will have peace in the afterlife. And people buy it. Why? Because they want it. They want shalom. They want peace. And people leaving families, people leaving wives and husbands in hopes that that next spouse, that next family is gonna be shalom for them, right? Would you guys agree with that? This is true, right? Everyone will agree with this. Non-believer, believer. We all know we're all not happy yet. <laughs> we're all looking for more. We're all looking for, for something else out there. Now the story that we're gonna look at tonight, it, it's sort of an illustration of that as well. Our story takes place at another means of man's attempt to create this shalom, this peace, okay? Now, last week, if you guys were here, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's, he's been doing ministry for three years. He's had all kinds of amazing things happen. He's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's cured withered hands. He's, he's ministered and preached and, and done ministry all throughout Israel. And now it's the last week of his ministry. As I said last week, Mark, literally upwards of half of the book is just about the last week of Jesus' life. It's cram-packed, it's full of important things. So literally, last week was yesterday, and this week is today. Do you know what I mean by that? Like we're literally going every day there's something happening in this last week, this passion week of Jesus' ministry. Um, 
So Jesus comes in yesterday or last week, I don't know. Jesus comes in to Jerusalem for the last week of his ministry. And as he comes in, there's multiple thousands, maybe even more people there to greet him. I don't know exactly who those people were, but we know that there was a large amount of people there laying down palm branches, yelling, Hosanna, save now. They thought Jesus was coming to rid them of the tyranny of Rome, this foreign government, right? Jesus comes in in this triumphant entry. He gets to the pinnacle, the focus of Jerusalem, which is the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he looks around and there's nothing there going on. He doesn't really like what he sees. It doesn't say specifically why. He just gets to the temple. He doesn't really care about what's going on there. There's nothing there for him. So he goes, he just leaves. That's the end. That's the end. We, we talked about that last week. Really interesting, right? This sort of anticlimactic end to this dramatic scene of Jesus entering into Jerusalem with all these people um, shouting Hosanna when he comes in. So he goes back to Bethany the next morning is where we pick up our story, okay? After that, after that crazy scene, they get up the next morning and they're going to go back into Jerusalem. And you got to imagine and put yourself, I like to think, put myself sometimes in the disciples' sandals here. Like what, what were they thinking when they're thinking about, okay, here we go, we're going back into Jerusalem. What are the thoughts going through their head? I, I think they'd have probably feelings of maybe excitement. Hey, maybe Jesus is really going to do this. Maybe he's just going to throw down and kick Caesar out and take out Rome and, and we're going to be the capital of the world now. And, all, you know, maybe he's going to do that. Maybe they'd be have excitement or, or maybe they'd have feelings of fear. Man, Jesus really makes people mad. <laughs> this guy we've been following around, this rabbi, he ticks people off. And now we're going into Jerusalem, the epicenter of tension when it comes to religion. I mean, there's multiple groups of people, multiple governments, multiple religions, multiple people groups that are, that are, that are, that are creating tension there. And what is Jesus going to say, man? Is he going to cause a riot? I mean, what's going to happen today? They probably have some serious anticipation. At the forefront of their mind, they understand what is going on in Jerusalem right now. And what's going on in Jerusalem is that two million extra people no lie, two million extra people are there. Pilgrims from Israel, they're there for Passover. So the city is bustling, which means that the Roman guards are beefed up, which means that the tension is beefed up. They're there to celebrate something that literally is celebrating the liberation from another government. And they're under another government. So the disciples are thinking, okay, this is going to be crazy. I mean, we're talking like a room full of gasoline, and Jesus is probably the spark that's going to blow the whole thing up. They're like, if Jesus goes, about, goes around talking about how he's the son of God again, or he says, man, eat my flesh and drink my blood, I mean, this thing could go bad. This thing could, I, I remember that feeling. I remember one time, when I was younger, I did, I did a, like a little missions trip into this city called San Leandro in the Bay Area, and it's, one of, it's literally known for being one of the worst high school districts there is. It's like the ones you see in the movies where it's like, just looks like a prison compound and literally almost half the kids are carrying weapons. There's school shootings all the time. Um, they're not, they don't have enough money to afford metal detectors so the kids just roll in with the guns and there's just crazy stuff going on there. And I remember getting up in the morning, we got up at 5.30 and we were gonna go do this evangelistic thing at this school and I'm just, my heart was pounding. I'm like, I'm this white kid from Montague. These guys are gonna look at me and they're just gonna shoot me for no reason just because I'm white. You know what I mean? I don't even know. But just like the, the, the tense feeling of like, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I think it's going to be crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just that feeling, you know what I'm saying? That's what the disciples would have been feeling like, I think, as they headed on that two mile trek back to Jerusalem. So as they make this short walk back into the city, they witness probably one of the most bizarre and confusing moments 
in the ministry of Jesus. Let's, let's look at it really quick. Mark eleven twelve through 14, it says this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Okay? And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, fig tree that has leaves on it, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, he talks to a tree. Anyone else think that's kind of funny? <laughs> He's talked to the tree. Okay, sorry. Uh, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Anybody ever read that and been like, huh? You're just cruising through the gospels. You're like, okay, I get this, I get that. And you're like, don't get that at all. That's confusing. Jesus just cursed a tree. I mean, what happened? Did he hit his head on the branch the day before and he's just really upset? And and he's just like, you're never gonna have fruit again because my head hurts. I mean, what's going on there, you know? It's, It's really weird. First of all, it says Jesus is hungry, okay? It's morning time. You know how it is. You got a big day ahead. They're going back into Jerusalem. He's got work to do. He doesn't have time to make a breakfast. Okay, what do we do? We drive through McDonald's. We get our Mc, you know, Mc, uh, whatever, you know, Mc sausage and uh, McGriddle. Those are good. Uh, but they keep getting smaller, you know? Like every time I go, they're smaller. He gets, you know, he can't just get his McGriddle. Uh, this is different. They got a little more creative back then. So as he's going on the road, there's a fig tree right on the side. Now, if there's a fig tree on the side of, of a road, it's kind of fair game, okay? And it was known that you could, you know, you can go get some fruit, go grab something that, in your hand to munch on, get some calories going. That's what Jesus is doing. He sees this fig tree. Be a common thing to see fig trees in Israel. They're all over the place. And then, and then and he goes up to the fig tree and there's no fruit. So he curses it. Now what's Jesus doing? I mean, is he throwing like this deistic fit here where he's just like, oh, I'm so angry that there's no, I was so hungry and you didn't give me any fruit, so curse you tree and you're not going to produce. No. I mean, what's he doing there? It's bizarre. It's strange. I mean, it's safe to say Jesus isn't a tree hugger, right? Can we, can we agree on that? The commentators have a field day with this. Bertrand Russell, he said, he accused Jesus of a vindictive fury for not producing fruit out of season. T.W. Manson, he states, the story is out of character for Jesus. It is the tale of miraculous power wasted on ill temper. See, it's, it's kind of seemingly out of character. I mean, up to this point, Jesus, every miracle Jesus has done has been life-giving, and now he's doing a miracle that's sort of life-taking, right, from this tree. The next act of Jesus, we'll come back to that, the next act of Jesus seems even a little more out of character. Look at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So, really quick, before we get too far into that, I want to explain a few things about the temple. I think there's, there's some background that we need to understand, first of all. Jesse, will you throw that slide up there really quick? I have a picture, just, just sort of, of Herod's temple. If Hopefully you guys can kind of see that. Um, the, the big outer court to the left is called the Court of Gentiles. Okay, the, 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 the um, temple would have been split into four different courts. You have the court of the Gentiles. You have a court where women could come and, and, and worship. You would have um, a court where only circumcised and Jewish men could come. And then you would have the holy place where the priests, and only the priests come, and then the holy of holies. So this was sort of the layout of the temple. And the reason why this is important is because when Jesus would have entered into the temple, he would have come directly into the court of Gentiles, which is this large court right on the side. I want you to picture a little bit sort of the scene here, okay? This is, by the way, this is a big structure. 
It's a big thing, especially back then. I mean, you come in to, to Jerusalem, I mean, you see this thing. This is the first thing you see. This is a massive structure. Herod did everything big, right? He did everything big. The Jewish historian Josephus said about the pillars there, he said these surrounding pillars were about 30 feet tall. Now, that's already on a mountain. It's already got walls. And then on top of those walls in this courtyard are 30 feet high pillars. And it said that three men would have to join arms just to get around the side of these pillars. So this is a big courtyard. This is a big area. You can take that down now. And this is a chaotic scene. Jesus walks into a chaotic scene. Why is it chaotic specifically? Um, Think about this, okay? You have two million people, probably more than two million people coming into Israel for Passover. And they all have to buy a sacrifice, a temple-approved sacrifice. Not only that, they have to exchange their currency in for a different currency to money changers. You have people changing money, you have people buying livestock, buying lambs, buying different, different animals so that they can make their sacrifice. And you've got a lot of people. Now, I want you to picture Black Friday at the mall. Anybody ever been to Black Friday at the mall? It's insane. It's insane. Picture that and then add 200,000 livestock. (laughs) This is what's going on. There's poo everywhere. It's hot. People are yelling. People are screaming. It's like the the stock exchange market in Wall Street. People are just yelling. Hey, you know, people are getting ripped off. It's just an insane, crazy, chaotic, huge court. That's the scene that Jesus comes into. Not much has changed in Israel. Can I just say that? There was a few times where I was in this really crowded streets in, in, in Jerusalem where there's people all over the place and it's hot and everyone's yelling and there's some Arab guy yelling and I don't know if he's yelling that he wants to kill me or that he wants to sell me something. It's insane, right? There's this tension there and you got Americans that aren't real smart like me that are trying to buy stuff with dollars and they're like, they want shekels and they're ripping you off and you know they're ripping you off but you really want that little trinket, you know? It's like not much has really changed there. It's tense, it's busy, it's hot, everyone's there, there's pilgrims coming from all over the place. It's similar. I can picture it in my head, I know what it feels like. Verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now notice first of all in verse 17, um, he was teaching them, okay? So Jesus comes in, as we saw in verse 15 and 16, he comes in, He's disgusted with what he sees, and he starts flipping tables, making a scene, stopping, literally, physically, stopping all of these probably thousands of people that are going on, stopping. This is literally that no one could carry a sacrifice through the courtyard, that Jesus had stopped all that was going on. And now he's teaching them. So he didn't just stop it, he's teaching them now. He's, he's telling them what's going on. I mean, talk about commanding attention. It says Jesus was just a normal guy. It says in Isaiah 53, he's, just, he's nothing that anyone would desire, I'm just a normal guy. Jesus must have been furious. I mean, he must have really been charismatic to get everyone's attention to stop all that was going on at that time. It's crazy to think about. But then he, he, he quotes scripture as he's teaching. He's talking about why he's doing this in the temple. He quotes scripture and he says specifically, quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7. He says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Now, who's these, first of all? Isaiah. What's Isaiah talking about here? These, the Gentiles. Isaiah is prophesying that the Gentiles he will bring to the holy mountain. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Why does Jesus quote that? It seems random. He quotes that because this is going on where? In the court of Gentiles. 
This is going on in the court of Gentiles, the place that God had specifically made and designed for the Gentiles, those that are not of Jewish birth, to be able to come in and offer and worship God and to meet with God. And the, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, those running the temple had turned this place that was designed to be for the Gentiles to have a place. Did you love that about God? That he created a place in the temple for Gentiles. He's always been for Gentiles. He's always been looking to, for, for there be a, a way for Gentiles to be grafted in. Isn't that great? And you see his heart come out here when they've made this place that was for the Gentiles. Specifically, they made it into this den of thieves, a den of robbers. So he quotes this verse. He gets mad. It ticks him off. His demeanor was so forceful, it literally stopped everything that was going on. Now, I think to fully understand the significance of what's going on, I really want to dig in a little bit deeper now. We've got some background and some some understanding of, of the temple and things like that. I want to dig in a little deeper on what the temple is. I think to understand the significance of what Jesus is doing, we need to look at the temple. Now, this is interesting. Tim Keller points out, by the way, if you haven't read Tim Keller yet, check him out. He's awesome. He's my, he's my favorite. Tim Keller points out in his book, King's Cross, he says this. Now listen, he says that the idea of the temple actually begins, okay, so the idea of the temple actually begins in the Garden of Eden. Have you thought about that? He states the garden was a primal sanctuary where man could dwell with God. In the garden, man walked openly with God. We had free and open sanctuary with our creator. So in the garden... It was sort of like this first temple. What is the point of the temple, first of all? The point of the temple is that man would have a place to meet with God. That man would have a place to be restored in fellowship with God. In the Garden of Eden, we walked freely in the garden with God. His presence was there. There was no sin, no fallenness, nothing to keep us from God. We were not tainted yet and fallen with death and with sin. So Jesus, I believe, literally, Jesus walked in the garden with Adam and with Eve. It's sort of like this this, this primal sanctuary, this shalom, this peace place, the way it was intended to be, right? This sanctuary, this temple, this place where God and man are together where they're supposed to be. And then what happens? In one world-changing moment, man revealed that there was a flaw with this shalom, with this sanctuary, with this temple. Do you know what that flaw was? It was him. It was man. Man was the flaw. Adam was the flaw with the temple of Garden of Eden. He was the flaw. He himself. Adam revealed by his choice a condition in mankind as a whole that would prevent all from seemingly from ever having that sanctuary again. Romans 5.12, listen to this. You don't have to turn there. Romans 5.12 says this very clearly. Therefore, just as through one man, what man? Adam, okay? Just as through one man, Sin entered into the world. So at that point, the temple, the, 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 the presence of God, the shalom that Adam had at that point was severed because of Adam's sin. And death through sin, death is the consequence of sin. Why do we have fires in weed? Why do we have Ebola in Africa? Why do we have ISIS in, in, in the Middle East? Why do we have people shooting planes down, people killing each other? Because of this. Because death is the consequence of sin right? This is just good Pauline theology. So death spread to all men because all sinned. You say that's not fair. Adam sinned. No, you sinned. We all would have done what Adam did. Adam was our father. 
He was our father. If we were in Adam's shoes, we would have done the same thing. Why? Because we are the problem with the temple. We were the problem in the garden. Not the garden. It wasn't the garden that God created. It was man. So we understand that. Now let's talk about the temple a little bit. There's an interesting history behind the temple that's kind of cool. So after the garden, you have Abraham, right? Genesis 22, God told Abraham to go and to grab his son Isaac, his only son Isaac, and to go up a specific mountain. That mountain was Moriah, Mount Moriah. Now that's important. He said, go up Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice your only son to me. Once they got up there, a ram, God provided a ram in the thicket. God said, I will provide myself a sacrifice, alluding to moving towards Jesus, being that one and true ram or lamb, that sacrifice. 400 years later, God gives these specific instructions to Moses through the law about how to build this thing called the tabernacle. Can you imagine how exciting that would be? So after all these hundreds of years of this, this beautiful shalom that was had in the garden, being disconnected, being severed, after all these years, finally God is creating a way for man to meet and be with God. And it was called the tabernacle. And he had all these specific rules and, and ways that they could do that. Um, the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenants and all of these specific things and the priesthood he divine. God designed all of these things specifically so that man could have communion, so that God, man could have fellowship with God once again. 500 years later, and by the way, in between there, constantly Israel falling away. Constantly Israel worshiping false gods. Constantly. I mean, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant being stole away because they would not obey God. Just constant rebellion, constant fallenness. 500 years later, David, King David, purchases Mount Moriah. That's so crazy to think about. He purchases Mount Moriah, the same mountain that Isaac and Abraham hiked up, the same mountain that Solomon built a temple on, the same mountain that Herod's temple is built on, the same mountain that today the Dome of the Rock Mosque sits on, and the same mountain that they'll try to build a temple again, and it won't work, and ultimately God is going to come back and rule from that same place. Isn't that amazing? So David purchases Mount Moriah. Six years later, David couldn't build the temple. We'll talk about him a little more later, but six years later, his son Solomon builds this beautiful, ornate temple, this permanent structure. Finally, this permanent structure, the tabernacle was a tent. It was, it was a movable place. Now God is, is dwelling in this, phys, in this physical and, and, and permanent structure, this beautiful, ornate te- temple that Solomon made. But it wasn't to last, right? 300 years later, what happens? After years and years and years and years of Israel being disobedient and worshiping pagan gods and refusing to repent after prophet after prophet, God sends the Babylonian empire, this one world ruling empire to come in and take Israel out of their homeland, take them captive, take them away. And what do they do? They destroyed Solomon's temple flat. So much for that. Man, we finally had the physical place to meet with God, to have shalom, to have sanctuary, and the Babylonians came and wiped it out. 70 years in captivity, right? Just like God said, 70 years they're in captivity. Finally, God allows them to take a a small number and to go back and to rebuild the temple. A modest temple, a smaller temple, but to rebuild the temple. A few hundred years later, Antichus, a pagan ruler, begins to desecrate that temple. What do you know? There's man screwing up the temple again. 
by placing a statue of Jupiter inside and slaughtering pigs at the altar. If you know anything about Jews, slaughtering pigs at the altar of the temple is not really a good thing. (laughs) If you know anything about the law. Three years later, there's another modest revival of the temple led by Judas Maccabees. You can read about that in the Maccabees. Um, and then 20 BC, okay? 20 BC, Herod, King Herod, Herod the Great, steps on to, Herod the not so great, uh, steps onto the scene and builds a bigger temple than there ever was before. I mean, a massive temple. We were in Israel and we saw the stones. They're like talking about three buses put together. Huge stones. They don't even know how they got them in there. He built this huge, this gigantic temple. For sure this one's going to stay. There's no way this one's going. I mean, this is it. This is it. This is going to be the place. Now, this is going to be the shalom. This is going to be the sanctuary. This is going to be the temple where man can finally meet with God. Well, what happened in 70 AD? Rome came in and knocked every stone down. You can still see the giant rocks just pushed off and still just sitting there. So big, I don't even know if they can move them. It's just crazy. And there hasn't been a temple since. And you have Jews that still are looking to the temple to be their shalom, to be their sanctuary, and they're worshiping a wall that is close to the presence of the old presence of God. They're worshiping the Western Wall, just a remnant. Because that's as close as they can get to that peace that they want, that we want, that everybody wants. They're worshiping a wall for that reason. The story of the temple is really a story of man's failed attempt to create shalom. For a man's failed attempt to create a place where God and man could finally be back where they belong together. Man is not capable of creating a sanctuary that lasts. Now not everyone, not everyone's intention for the temple was wrong, right? There was a guy, you guys may have heard of him, he was called a man after God's own heart. King David, right? King David, he had this zeal. I, what I think, honestly, was a messianic zeal that pointed forward to the zeal that Jesus would have for his temple. His messianic zeal for God's house. He wrote in Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house consumes me. He, David was obsessed with wanting to build a physical structure for the Lord. Why is God in his presence, in his ark, why is it in a tent when I'm in a house? He says, I want to build this physical house. But ultimately, David did not have the means by which to create the temple that we need, right? He didn't. David could not make a lasting temple. David's desire was to create an earthly sanctuary by earthly means to restore temporary fellowship. Let me read that again. David's desire was to create an earthly sanctuary, a physical sanctuary, by earthly means to restore temporary fellowship. Jesus' desire, listen, Jesus' desire was to create heavenly sanctuary by sovereign means to restore eternal fellowship. Do you get that? It's awesome. So what is Jesus' perspective coming into the temple? Okay, we talked about the temple a little bit more. He, he comes in, he sees this scene, this, 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 just these thieves and these robbers taking advantage of these pilgrims coming in to try to give a sacrifice. What is, what is his perspective? I think it would be irritated. God gave the temple so that man could meet with him and man has continually screwed it up. He knew the importance of man being restored to fellowship with God. Imagine the righteous anger he would feel as he sees the very means by which he provided for man to meet with God being taken advantage of, being, 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 being ruined. You see why he reacted the way that he did. Now this is cool. Listen, Je- Jesus cleansing the temple is simply his first act in restoring sanctuary 
and shalom. It's his first act. Jesus comes in and all he's doing is just giving a foreshadow. I'm coming in here to take this thing out. Why? Because this is not it. What's his second act? The cross. The cross. When Jesus came into the temple, he flipped tables. When he went to the cross, he flipped the world upside down. When Jesus went into the temple, he stopped the, the, the thieves and the robbers from, from continuing what they were doing. When he, when he went to the cross, he completely shut down the Old Testament ceremonial laws. He became the temple. When Jesus went to the cross, he became our means by which that we now can have shalom with God, that we can be renewed and restored to sanctuary with God. When he went into the temple, he was just giving a small foreshadow of what he was really going to do on the cross. The temple's gone. You guys get that? It's gone. It's not there. But Jesus is not because he rose and he's still He's, he's the chief cornerstone, man. He's creating, he's creating a church out of you guys, living stones, and he's the chief cornerstone. When we went to Israel, guess what? The cornerstone is still there. It's still there. It's this giant stone. It's still there. Jesus is the cornerstone. Like I talked about last week, we are the living stones. The foundation is the truth of what happened on the cross, the gospel, the good news, the word. It's phenomenal. He's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. In that moment, there was no more need for the temple. The veil was ripped. There was no more need for animal sacrifices. There were no more need for the priesthood. There's no more need for any of that. Why? Because Jesus has become that. Jesus is our means of connection. Jesus is our shalom. It is finished. The foundation is laid and no one, not the gates of hell will prevail against it. It's awesome. What about the tree? (laughs) Right? What's up with that? What about the tree? Let's go back to that. So, interestingly enough, look at 19. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So after this crazy day of Jesus flipping over tables and preaching and all this insane stuff, and when, when evening came, they went out of the city. They passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. So the next day they get up. They're walking back to Jerusalem. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Probably kind of like, hey, look, why'd you do that? It's kind of weird. Look, you killed a tree. What'd you do that for? By the way, Mark does this thing called the ABA kind of method. It's like, it's like he starts a story and then he goes off into another story and then he like bookends it with the story again. And I don't think that's an accident. You notice he does that? If you, look at, if you look specifically at verse 12, he talks about the tree and then it's like nothing. And then he talks about Jesus cleansing the temple. And all of a sudden in verse 20, he's back to the tree again. I think Mark does that because he's trying to, to show us that there's a connection here between this tree and between the temple. There's a connection. It's the ABA thing. It's kind of cool. So why did Jesus curse this fig tree? What's going on here? When Jesus says, no one will ever eat fruit of you again, he's referring to the temple. This is an illustration. This is, this is a way for physically the disciples to see the reality of what's going on in the temple and what's going to happen at the temple. What happened to the temple? It never bore fruit again. It's gone. It was knocked over. It was destroyed. Just like this tree, right? Never again would God's people only have the means of the temple to commune and find sanctuary. 
Now notice also in verse 18, it says the chief priests and the scribes, after he comes in and he flips over these tables and he takes control of this environment, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teachings. Why are they, why are they fearing Jesus? Because they're the tree. <laughs> the priesthood, those running the, the, the temple were the tree. And they're worried because they know Jesus is coming in and, and his intention is to take out what they do. These guys are like mobsters. Jeremy and I, we we're talking about that today. It's funny. These, you th- think of like these really righteous spiritual guys. Secretly, these guys are like mobsters. They're like standing over to the side in their robes and they're like, that guy, kill him, kill his mom, kill his kids. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're, they're like, they're literally like, kill that guy. He's, he's going to mess up our business. They were making money hand over fist on this thing. They see Jesus coming in and starting to change it and they're like, kill him. He's got to be gone. These are like the mobsters, man. The religious mobsters. They're dead trees, and they're worried. Okay, back to the tree. One one immediate question comes to my mind with this tree. If cursing this tree was meant to be an illustration of the deadness of the fall of the temple, then why does Mark specifically point out that the tree was out of season? That doesn't seem fair. If it were me, I would think that Jesus would go to a dead tree. Say, look, guys, this is the temple, a dead tree. There you go. You know what I mean? Like, like, why did he go up to a tree that has leaves on it and then curse it and then that's an illustration of the deadness, the spiritual deadness of the temple. It doesn't really make sense to me. Now, it seemed to me that if Jesus was going to do that, he would do a dead tree. But the answer is, is, is actually was simpler than I thought. <laughs> the answer is simpler than I thought. It just comes from science, right? So fig trees in Israel, when they have leaves... They don't just have leaves. They also start these little buds, these little nodules, these little, these little things that basically end up becoming figs months down the road. So if a tree had leaves, it would have these little nodules. Now, that doesn't mean it was the ultimate meal from this tree, but it means that it was enough food to eat, right? So Jesus goes up to this tree thinking, oh, this tree has leaves. It's going to have some of these little starts, these little nodules. I'm going to go eat some of them and get some protein, get some, some calories. He goes up, and there's no nodules in there. There's no, there's no starts of figs or anything, but yet it has leaves, what does that mean? It means the tree is sick. <laughs> the tree may have leaves, but it's not producing fruit. So it's really worthless. What's the tree, what's the tree there for? It's interesting. Now, again, the temple. What's going on in the temple? You got hundreds, thousands of people crowding into the temple. You have sacrifices. So you, have, you have a priestly system. You have all of these things going on in the temple. It's bustling. It would seem like when you look at the temple, you think, man, God is working. Man, this shalom is there. Look at the priest is going. Rome's allowing us to have this giant temple. It's the biggest temple we've ever had. I mean, thousands of people are coming in and, wor- and worshiping and giving sacrifices. You would think by looking at the temple, by looking at Herod's temple, that this is a fruitful thing. But is it really? No. It's just outward appearance. It's just false religion. Just like this tree. This tree has leaves. It appears like it has life. But when you truly come up to it, there's no life. There's no fruit. There's nothing there. It just appears like it does. Guys, this is something we gotta watch out for. Can I just say that? I mean, this is something we gotta watch out for. How do we know that we have fruit? Well, I have a fish on the back of my car, and I, you know, I, I, I go to church once, twice a week. I mean, I serve. 
uh, tithe, you know, I give some money to, to donations and things. I'm doing all these things. I'm running around making sure my kids go to private school and I'm, I'm doing all this good stuff. And I'm, I'm having a Bible study and I'm busy and like, you know, obviously there's, look at all my leaves. <laughs> okay. Jesus isn't talking about leaves. He's not interested in leaves. He's interested in fruit. He's not interested in how busy you are. He's not interested in how much, you know, you know, cultural Jesus stuff you're doing. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of non-believers out there that are probably doing more than we are. They're probably quicker to go down and, and buy stuff for, for, for this fire down there than we are. There's probably a, a lot of non-believers that are doing a lot of busy things too, but it doesn't mean it's real fruit. It doesn't mean that it's eternal, supernatural, God-given, God-breathed fruit. It doesn't mean that. That's what God's interested in. Well, what is real fruit? How do we know what the real fruit is? Let me ask you this. What's your shalom? What is your shalom? What do you look to? What's your sanctuary? What's your temple? What do you look to to say, I need peace. I need to know who I am. I need to know what's going on. Do you do that stuff in, in a way to make you feel good? Or do you do that stuff because you just love Jesus? He's your shalom. And because of that, man, I'm flipping on Christian radio because I want to be encouraged. Is he your shalom? Is he your peace? Is he your sanctuary? Is he your temple? Or are you going to the same temple these guys were going to? Is he where you go to to have your shalom? Is he your greatest desire? Is he the point for you? That's how you know your real fruit. It's not about how much are you doing or how much are you not doing. That's old covenant. So how much do you treasure Jesus? Have you allowed him to take your heart? Have you allowed him to be the greatest desire in your life? And is he your means by which you have shalom? Is he your means by which you have peace? Is he who you trust? Check this out, and then we'll close. So reading on in Mark eleven twenty one. 21. Sorry, 20, Mark eleven twenty. 20. So as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away. And Peter remembered, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Okay, can we stop there? So you're the disciples, Jesus cursed a fig tree yesterday. Really random, really weird. You're really dying to know what in the world is going on. I love it when Jesus says what he, why he did stuff. I mean, you remember the parable of the, the sower and the seed? I love that one because I'm like, well, that's confusing. But look, Jesus explains it. You know what I mean? I've got four seeds. I, I would love to, like, if you could, you could, like, take out the explanation of the four seeds and then give it to a bunch of commentators, see what they actually come up with, and then say, oh, yeah, actually, this is what Jesus really meant when he was saying that. I mean, it's so confusing, you know? I love it when Jesus explains what he's talking about. Jesus does this really random thing. The next day, the disciples are like, perfect, maybe he'll tell us why he did that. Look, Rabbi, the tree, the, it's dead, it's rotting, like, you killed it. Why'd you do that, you know? And Jesus answers, nothing to do with the tree. <laughs> I mean, he gives this answer, which I think, I think personally has to do with the tree, but it's not, he's not like, yes, I did that to show you that you shouldn't be barren like the temple and, you know, I'll curse you. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything specific or anything about the tree. And like, why not? Come on, Jesus. Tell us what's going on. Here's what he says. Jesus answered them. He says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. What an intriguing answer. 
Why'd you curse this tree, Jesus? Have faith and, uh, you know, have enough faith and you can move mountains and believe. And Okay, that's cool, but like, what, what does that have to do with the tree? <laughs> I'll tell you what I think. I think, I think Jesus states two basic thoughts here in this response to this tree. The first thing he says is, is that to have faith in God, right? Love that. Have faith in God. We're saved by our faith, by what he's done, believing in him, right? We're saved by grace through faith. And then he says the second thing, he, he talks about power. He says, hey, if you say to that mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Now, the conservative churches, um, the ones that I come from and the ones that sometimes I even lean more to, they like would just love to skip over this, right? That's awkward. What do you mean if I have enough faith I can move a mountain? I mean, we don't see that stuff happening. That's weird. Let's move on. Let's just get back into Romans 8. You know what I mean? Um, let's not worry too much about that. Like, but this is, this is a power statement. Jesus is saying that you can move mountains if you have enough faith. If you believe it, it's gonna happen. So he says two things. He says, believe, have faith. And secondly, there's power there. Jesus just cursed a tree, which I believe truly was symbolizing the fall of the temple. And then he comes in with what? New covenant theology. Two things. New covenant theology. Faith. It's all it takes. Jesus has provided the way. All we do is believe in him, right? And secondly, there's power for you guys. You get that? There's power. There's the Holy Spirit. We're not bound by the fallenness anymore. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome. We struggle with sin. We struggle with our fallenness. But there's power at, that we just have to ask for. The Holy Spirit is present, living within us. Jesus is trying to say something here. Hey, it's not about the temple anymore. It's about me. Now have faith and go move mountains. <laughs> That's awesome. This is the new covenant that we're living. What an exciting time that we live in, that we don't have to go to the temple and slit the throat of a sheep or a lamb, that we literally have God living inside of us, temple inside of us, that we have shalom right there, Jesus himself, our intermediator between God and man, and that now we have power. We've been given the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is saying. Have faith and receive power. That's it. He's not saying, go to the temple, sacrifice a lamb, burn some incense, recite the Torah, um, put a little Bible on your head, put a black suit on, have little curls, go fly an airplane into a building. He's not saying any of that stuff. No. He says, there's shalom. Believe and receive power. It's the gospel. Believe in Jesus and have your heart reborn. Have the Holy Spirit come into you, to dwell in you, to empower you, to live through you, to transform you, your heart and your mind. It's phenomenal. It's exciting. So back to my very opening statement, the shalom. We're all looking for it. The shalom. This is what Jesus has come into our lives in so many ways to do, is to reunite us, right? To create shalom for us. It's for his glory, but the beautiful thing about that is that when he gets the glory, we get the joy, right? The more glory he gets, the more joy we have. Jesus has come to give us peace. What does he say? He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I've come to be shalom for you. I've come to create an everlasting, an eternal shalom, not a fallen temple that man screws up and destroys, but an eternal, everlasting temple, an eternal, everlasting shalom. That's Jesus. That's what he's come to do. He's answered that question for us. I'm going to read two scriptures. I'm going to ask you guys to stand up while we do this. Because I just don't want you to miss these, and they're so cool. Jesse, you throw the first one up on the screen there for me. Both of these scriptures 
are just phenomenal. In light of everything that we've just looked at, okay, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this. Since then, we have a great high priest. Who is that? Jesus. Come on, who is that? Jesus is our great high priest. He has become the priesthood. He has taken away that crooked and fallen priesthood and he has become that priesthood. It says, who has passed through the heavens? Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now listen to verse 16. Let us then with what? Let us then with what? Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you believe that? Okay, the next one. It gets better. Romans 5, 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass lead to the condemnation for all men. Whose trespass? Whose trespass was it? Come on. Adam's. Because Adam's trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, whose act of righteousness? Jesus. Leads to justification and life for all men. Shalom for all men, right? Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, by Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is good news, right? That is good news. Guys, don't spend the rest of your life seeking shalom in stupid places, okay? In stupid places. We know where it is. We know where peace is. We know it's Jesus. He is it. He is our new temple. He is our means by which we connect with the Father. He is it. And let's just remember that. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the good news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that, uh, God, that you've not only saved us, but you've empowered us. You've not only forgiven our sin, you've given us power. You've not only forgiven our sin, you've given us your righteousness. Jesus, that you took our sin and replaced it with your perfect life. That, Father, when you see us, you see Jesus. You see his righteousness. You see his perfection. You see his holiness. I thank you, Father, that we have eternal, we have eternal shalom to come, Lord. And we have momentary shalom even now, Lord, if we choose to focus on you, God. If we choose to turn our affections to you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would not return to the temple, God. By, by living out in the law, by looking to, to dead things to save us, but Jesus, that we would look to you, that we would have true fruit, that we wouldn't be those that have leaves and no fruit, God. Lord, empower us for the work of your ministry, empower us to be ambassadors of the reconciliation of you, Jesus, and send us out, God. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for coming out. We'll see you Sunday.